Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today, I'm joined by Allison Van Quicken. Allison is the Executive Director of Trans Can Work a leading workplace education and workforce development organization advancing transgender inclusion in the workplace. Born and raised and educated in Michigan, Allison now spends their time between Washington, D.C. and Southern California. Along the way, they met and married their spouse and together are raising their beautiful and very curious toddler. Prior to joining TransKen Work, Allison spent the last 20 years in leadership positions within the private sector, higher education, the political realm, state government, and LGBTQ advocacy spaces, including the Human Rights Campaign and Equality California. As a member of a transgender community and as a strong advocate for diverse and inclusive workplaces, Allison uses their experiences in leadership positions to help other leaders build truly inclusive cultures that can unlock the potential of a diverse team. Since joining Trans Can Work in 2018, Allison and their team's collective vision have led to new and innovative approaches to workplace education. The expansion of organizations' job programs, which connects hundreds of inclusive workplaces to one of the nation's largest transgender talent pools, and the development of a workforce development network that provides education and training to people of transgender experience and scores of high-demand professions. Allison, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? Well, hello, love. That was uh, a lovely introduction. <laughs> I love how you, you threw the family in there because that's really my, my favorite part of my day-to-day routine is uh, mm-hmm. loving them and, and being around them. So thank you. That never really made it into my professional bio. Um, okay. But I'm doing pretty good. It's a, it's a beautiful day here, but I'll give you the, the honest answer. We woke up today with a, a broken faucet, and so uh, <laughs> we're, we're waiting on a plumber right now that uh, Megan and the baby will take in a few minutes. But uh, other than that, it, it's a great day. I have a uh, family around me. I got great work I do every day with a wonderful team, and, uh, of course, the weather's lovely, and that's helpful too. So uh, good. Michelle, how are you? I'm doing well. I mean, I often tell people, you know, 
I've, I've met so many great people who have gone on and moved here, there, and, but it's great to always reconnect with them and to, to see them. I remember when I first met you, you were in Ferndale. Um, we had that HRC bond together, and it just I was, like, was so cool because I was like, oh, hey, I'm sure I'm just like, oh, I know you, you know, and, and it, we like immediately clicked, and you've welcomed me as a part of, like you said, the important things in your life, seeing you and your wife when you celebrated your marriage. Uh, you know, you came back and had a, a, a celebration here in Michigan and being there and watching you two and, and your family because isn't that what it's all about for us, you know? We just want to live our lives and have family. It it really is. At the at the end of the day, I love my work. A work is a big part of my identity, but my family is equally, if not more so, a part of my identity. It's my support network. It's the people I talk to every day. Um, it's a big part of, as I like to say, paying it forward. You know, having a little child that uh, I can introduce the world to her and get to know her and help shape some of her experiences that will forever play out in her life. It's just really the, the privilege I, I, I always have centered and I'm always thinking about and I'm so grateful for at the end of the day uh, to see her grow and to, to help her become, um, she will identify uh, with us at some point, but right now we are uh, under the assumption she's been assigned female birth. So giving her everything a woman's experience can be and making sure that she's empowered and um, capable of going forth and, and doing things. And I got to tell you, Michelle, she does all the time. She, she gets into <laughs> stuff. She is a toddler, as, as much of a toddler as can be, exploring. It's constantly a challenge, but we love it. We love it. We love to see her learn and uh, break things and figure out how to put them back together, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, so I, I mean, don't you love that? I mean, that's the one thing about, about kids. And often, you know, in all of these things, you know, that's the thing that I think that, that people lose. First of all, you know, let's not put our kids, at, which unfortunately it's like the yin-yang. I mean, we have these these reveal parties and like that to where you're almost like putting them in this box before they even get here with expectations. Mm-hmm. But the potential of every child and how people should just celebrate, you know, I mean, who cares if it's green, blue, pink, yellow, you know, and balloons. But let's celebrate saying, hey, I'm having a healthy child, and then allowing that child to be healthy and discover and be all that they can be. So true, so true. And I I think that really within the context of what's going on in this country where for many of us things can really feel out of control, we're powerless, we don't have any say in our destinies. You know, for me, I'm always centering the fact that I have very much a say in my family's destiny and being a part of contributing towards goals and missions and dreams, really. And um, that's helpful. It's really, it's a counterbalance I've, I've paid particularly close attention to since, really, since 2016 and this administration mm-hmm. and the near constant attacks on the community. Um, she was born in 2016, so there's probably also a, an overlap there with um, coming into parenthood and understanding really that awesome responsibility it is to, to raise a little person and uh, a responsibility to make sure this little person is a, a, you know, a contributing member of society or, as I like to say, a good neighbor to everybody, mm-hmm. not just you mm-hmm. know, people that they have things in common with. <clears throat> but, you know, you spent 20 years doing this work. And, you know, 
this wasn't when and when you started got into doing this kind of work with um, LGBTQ advocacy, not only with human, the Human Rights Campaign and Equality California, you got into this. What pulled you into this work? Because I know probably at that point in time, this beautiful life that you have might not have even been, you know, it, might have, it was a dream. It might not have even been on your radar. But what got you into this work? I think uh, the longer answer is it's, I think it has a lot to do with my upbringing. Um, mm-hmm. I had parents that divorced, so I had these two very interesting dichotomies growing up. My father is very conservative, um, and uh, I, I guess you could kind of say at the end of the day, somewhat selfish. And, you know, I mm-hmm. saw how that manifested in life. He, he would call it Dutch, <laughs> but it's really at the end of the day selfishness. And mm-hmm. so I had, that pers- I had that perspective. And then on the other side, I, I had my mother, who was a very giving, nurturing person, and uh, a lot of her family very giving and nurturing. And so I had these kind of interesting um, dichotomies. I think on my dad's side, you know, there was this kind of will to power. Like if you want to do things, you just need to do them and not expect anyone to bring them to you, which was helpful for really kind of my motivations in life and understanding that if I want something, I got to go out and really kind of work for it, earn it, or make it happen. And then my Uh mother, it's always centering on other people. So I had these values. I kind of came up in this crucible, if you will. And as I got older, um, one of the things that kind of always interested me was politics. And that was really my entry point into doing LGBT work outside of my identity. Um, I'm sure maybe we'll talk about the the trans story in a minute. But Mm -hmm. I also always knew I was trans. And I had, you know, this identity that I just couldn't reconcile until I was 30. Um, But. I always had this interest, kind of circling back to to the interest, I always had this interest in politics. And what politics really was at the end of the day is the same kind of dichotomy I just described, where on one side you kind of have this very selfish perspective of the world, what's good for me. Uh, And then on the other side, the the more liberal democratic side, you have this very selfless, like let's work together to improve all of our lives, you know, make a better neighborhood, um, help each other out, because when we all succeed, we all do better. And I was always drawn to that ladder of the two, the, the selfless, uh, selfless, selflessness. And mm-hmm. um, my grandmother was really big into politics. She worked for some people um, back in Grand Rapids in Congress. Uh, I went to both uh, Democratic and Republican rallies, and I was always really fascinated by that. Uh, my father watched the news, so I watched that a lot. And when I was in my mid-20s, I came to the realization, you know, I was, I was working in the private sector selling coffee, it was very exciting. Um, it paid well, but it was not fulfilling on the most important of levels. And so I asked myself in my mid-20s, you know, what do I really want to do with my life? And the mm. answer, after much thought and deliberation, was I think I'd like to go work in politics and see where this takes me. Um, so I got involved with West Michigan politics. I did that for a number of years, kind of working um, up some experience and finding new jobs and it ultimately ended up with me working in the state legislature back there. And that's when that moment in time came together where my career and my identity kind of clashed. And I realized, wow, I'm 30 now and I'm, I'm not out and uh, I'm really miserable. I had a lot of wonderful things in my life at the time, but I was completely miserable. And the decision was pretty much made for me. I just had to go through the motions, but uh, I had to come out and I had to identify who I really was and, and live authentically. At the end of the day, it was the only the only thing I knew that was ever going to kind of get me to this place where I felt right, where I felt whole, where I had the capacity and ability to find happiness. So when I came out, um, you know, the long story short is I lost everything, uh, but a couple mm-hmm. of people there in Michigan uh, 
saw an opportunity to help a, a member of the trans community that had this kind of unique experience working in politics find their place in the world. And that is what led me into LGBT work. It was really some of my peers um, recognizing that uh, I could be a good addition to the team, and they invited me in. And it was that first job. I always say this when I'm going around talking to companies and, and people. It was always that first job that changed my entire life at that point. I was a, a fairly broken person after losing everything, and that's what mm -hmm. led me to move over to Detroit from Grand Rapids. But I, I got that job, and I made the best of it and it opened doors for me to continue moving forward. And Michelle, from there, that's when I met Megan, and, you know, my life just kind of went on <laughs> a very unique path I've been on, and uh, that's how I got in. It was, uh, you know, my head and values and heart were in the right place, and then it was just uh, community really reaching out and inviting me in to, to do stuff. And so now I try to pay it forward in every way I possibly can, from uh, the jobs I've held over the years to what we're doing at Trans Can Work, it's all about giving people that as opportunities to, to open the world up for them. Now, I had to, you know, I, I said, mentioned earlier that our connection was through the Human Rights Campaign. And mm -hmm. I have been engaged, really engaged with the Human Rights Campaign. Hey, baby. <laughs> um, that, um, in, in the olden days. And I remember it was like when Enda was coming through, and there was a, a big thing, okay, where basically one thing had been said and basically the trans community was thrown under the bus and it was like, well, you could wait, you know. And there were things about the organization and friendships that I made that I always held dear, but I just sort of had to like step away because I was like, you know, maybe everything that people were telling me about it that I was trying to, to see through, wasn't it? And then there you were. And to me, meeting you and that not only – meeting you, but you were engaged with the human rights campaign and what you were doing sort of said to me that there was a shift in the organization. And, you know, to like, oh, okay, I can maybe, you know, things do change. When you, you took that step and you got engaged with that human rights campaign and you, you were working for them, did you get some pushback from the trans community? Because I know that there are still people who, who you know, aren't, remember the old days. But did you get some pushback? And did you feel when you got there that there was a shift in the organization? There was a new executive director that was about the time, not president, actually, that was about the time that Chad Griffin had started right around his beginning of his tenure there. Yeah, yeah. So a lot, a lot there. I, I think I'll begin with the, the, the shift in the culture at HRC. You know, to kind of address the history, um, people make mistakes. That's human. It's completely mm -hmm. human. And, you know, the, the mistake with ENDA um, back in 2006 was uh, a very difficult one. I think it wasn't very strategic. Um, and, but, and, you know, it was what it does. And it caused a lot of harms and it needed to be corrected. And HRC did do that. I, you know, I've, mm -hmm. I've been in that culture. I've been at the, the top of the levels or amongst the top of the levels in that organization and served in a lot of different roles there. And, and I definitely can tell you that the thinking is in the absolute right place. I really look around now at all the national LGBT organizations and what HRC is doing. And, you know, they've got trans people in the executive leadership positions there, um, a bunch in the staff. Um, they do a pretty good job with competency training. I'm just, I'm very impressed. And I think they're really kind of a, a movement leader on what inclusion looks like in 
LGBT organizations. And mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to be there when that started. Um, I will say I'm a, I was a little green. You know, I was fairly new to being out as trans. Um, but I did come from this culture that people make mistakes. And, you know, if you're willing to, to help correct that, be a part of the amends process, um, then many good things can happen. It's a lot easier to be part of change than to criticize change, or at least that's where mm-hmm. my heart and, and my life is at. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I joined the organization. I wanted to represent it well. Um, I felt very welcome there. I, it's just there's all kinds of stories I could talk about with how they, uh, they really went out of the way to, to help some of the challenges I faced as being a member of the trans community. But I think that's where I'll segue into the emotional labor of what it is to be trans at HRC. Um, while our cisgender allies were so great within the organization and with uh, their volunteers and, and membership, I absolutely had a lot of kickback from the transgender community, and I understood where it was coming from. It was harms, it was uh, slights that they had, uh, that we have felt as a community by being dropped. Um, it, it's coming from uh, a very difficult place. That it's trauma. I mean, it really it's trauma for a lot mm-hmm. of people. And, as a representative of the organization, I had a lot of that directed at me. And that was back in, God, when did we do that? 2014? Um, mm-hmm. All the way through to my last, uh, I like to call them tours of duty, but my last run with HRC, I was doing a campaign for them out in Pennsylvania years later. And they had done so much great work in that space over those years. And uh, it was still really, really intense. It was really difficult. It was a lot of weight to carry, uh, very distracting. Um, and, uh, you know, I think they're on the right path, but it's, uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's still there. And I, you know, I really feel for members of the trans community working with that organization in places where a lot of those, um, that, that uh, kind of bitterness or the, um, those harms and that vulnerability still is very, very raw. Pennsylvania mm-hmm. is one of these states, um, but uh, it's, um, you know, it, it was, it was a lesson learned. <laughs> it absolutely was a lesson learned. Yeah. You know, and it is like you see things and, and it is, it's a learning thing. I noticed that um, when HRC was pulling together people, I mean, and, and, and I know that there have been many trans people working with HRC in leadership positions and you see that change. But then like when they did the equality act, uh, they were, bringing people before Congress to testify, and there was Carter Brown, a black trans man, and he was working, and he did a commercial um, a PSA with HRC. And to me, I was like, you know, like you said, and our culture and community has changed too, to where, you know, from where it was back then to where people are now, you just have to look at it differently. And when you see politically where, I mean, you've got trans people who are running for and winning, you know, political office. So mm-hmm. the organization either grows and, and changes with the times or it doesn't. And one thing I've noticed about HRC, it's always been thoughtful, strategic, and looking at, you know, it's it's not – some things might be monolithic, but it, part of it is very fluid and changing with the community. So I have to ask, when you heard about uh, Alfonso Davis coming in as the new um, 
president. I know I know people who like you know their draw jock, you know their draw yeah. because not only do people not think of HRC being very trans inclusive, but they don't think of it being very inclusive for communities of color, specifically black people. And I know that you know I've met some great people who are people of color who work there. And I know people who have left since then thinking that that day would never come. But here mm-hmm. we've got this new guy. You know, so yeah. what was your impression when you saw that? Yeah, so I, I can tell you because it's, it's crystal clear with me. So when they announced uh, when they announced him coming on, they had this video um, all about his story. And one, I want to say his story is incredible. Uh, yes, it is. Some of the things that happened in his family, to come here, all of it. It just is really you can make a movie about it. I mean, really, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's just, it's, it's got a lot, but there was a line in that video that just jumped out at me, jumped out at me so much. I actually posted on Facebook. I'm not a prolific Facebook social media person at all, but I posted about that. Cause it really meant something to me. And it was a line about, you know, being there and supporting that trans woman of color going in for that job interview. And again, mm-hmm. in my line of work, you know, all of our, everything we do is about getting people jobs. And when I heard that, that really, centered what I think at this point is probably the most important and strategic thing we should be focusing on in the LGBT movement, or at least the trans community, which is more economic empowerment. And when I mm-hmm. heard that, it distilled down almost everything into that one line that meant so much to me. I mean, literally a job is security, it's food security, it's shelter, um, it's purpose, it is so much. And he narrowed it down to that one thing. And I just, I love that. Uh, I lifted it up on social, and um, I, I'm just really excited to see what that starts to look like. I mean, it's a huge organization. It's a super tanker, so it takes time to really move that organization into the new priorities and mission that he's going to take it in, in. But I'm excited to hear that that was one of the few things he mentioned in that video because um, it is just so important. So I'm excited. At the end of the day, I am excited to see where this goes. Um, I've been maintaining my relationships there. I'm looking forward to continuing our conversations and how we can help each other and um, particularly in how we can help trans people of color, especially trans women, uh, find employment and economic empowerment to, to really get a foot up on the world and, and uh, have a little bit more fuel in the tank to pursue dreams. And that's, uh, that's exciting stuff. You know, it's, it's really exciting mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, I know. I mean, I was like, wow. And you, but yeah, I also, when the NAACP conference was here, um, one of the people, first of all, when they have this LGBTQ uh, panel and a reception, you know, and they pass like three resolutions about LGBTQ people, one specifically about trans people, but one of the co-sponsors, you know, I'm going into this thing, you know, thinking, okay, and here, one of the co-sponsors was HRC. And not only was it, they have people in the audience. And I was just like, okay, it's on and popping, <laughs> you know. I mean, they, they mean what they're going to do. And I thought that was just, like I said, you know, but one of the things that um, one of the guys said, you know, that it will still take all of our engagement to be behind him and to push and make sure that what he puts out there, what he's trying to do happens. And I thought that that was, that's true, and that's real. And so we cannot, it's been that organization. The organization is changing, and 
part of being the change is the involvement of those of us who are the members so that when they go up there and they're touting those numbers, we aren't just numbers. We are participants in the process. So I thought that was really great. So we're going to take our first break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the trans community. So we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and I'm speaking with Allison Van Quicken. Allison, you know, you are a member of a trans community, and there are so many amazing things that are happening. Like I said, at the NAACP uh, convention, they had a, uh, they passed a resolution. And I mean, I can recall during the marriage, before we got marriage equality, going back and forth with we're, we're, with the NAACP, with they're not supporting our civil rights, but they passed a transgender resolution saying that we should be protected, people in the, in the trans community should be protected, uh, that the civil rights mattered. They did that. That same weekend that they were here, uh, uh, Andrea Jenkins was in town, you know, who I've known, I knew before she got elected. And not only was Andrea Jenkins in town, but Philippe Cunningham, two trans people serving on the Minneapolis City Council, and Andrea is vice president of it. And she had won her seat. She had 70% of the vote. And they brought out the the voter numbers went in there. And they're just examples of there are other people in the trans community who are out there who are doing it, who are making making a change, and and mm-hmm. to I, I'm happy to know, but she said she's staying in politics. But that part is just like how rewarding is that? The fact that you know people who are not only getting elected, but people who are in the trans community, like you and your wife, and you're living your lives, your family. You know, you're not oh, well, we're over here, we're doing that. You're living your life, you're living authentically. How important is that? And what does that, what's the good news you hear from that for the trans community? Yeah, great, great question, great question. So, um, it, gosh, what it really is, so let me, let me give you a little personal story to kind of put this in context. So when I came out, and part of the reason I didn't come out and held it in for so long is that, I did not see a path forward. I did not see possibility models. I did not see people that were like me um, being able to live authentically and have, uh, you know, a good life or, you know, things. That was always the fear was that there was just no examples of that. 
And I think when, with Andrea and Philippe and all the incredible other people that have uh, gotten into, been elected to office and uh, are, you know, running organizations and doing these incredible things, or, or starting families, right? Like the family thing was big for us too. We didn't see a lot of possibility models there. We had seen lots of trans couples that had had kids prior to coming out and transitioning, but not a lot in our position. And I think the power of seeing just possibility that, you know what, this can be done. You know, you can dream big, and you know what, those aren't just dreams, they're possibilities. Um, that is probably one of the most important things I, I could think of. I think there's another aspect too with just, I think moving trans competency and acceptance forward, you really need two things. You need to have contact and you need to have visibility. Um, and so when uh, cisgender folks or, you know, non-trans folks uh, see trans people winning office and having these good jobs and having families, there's an element of, forgive me, I don't like this word, but normalcy um, mm-hmm. that helps them accept that, wow, okay, it's just, a, you know, it's just another type of person out there. That's great. You know, good neighbors, so on and so forth. And um, I think that that is the real power there. I think that's the real value. It, it wasn't just a big win for trans people to see uh, them getting elected. It was a big win all, for all of us just in knowing that, wow, you know, our people can, can really rock. Our people can contribute to society mm-hmm. in a very meaningful kind of way. And I'm pretty sure that reduced or increased trans visibility, understanding, acceptance in Minnesota and all around the country, but it was game-changing. Um, that 2007 election uh, will always be, you know, in, in the back of my mind of great moments in trans history um, uh-huh. because it was, a, it was the turning point. I, I know it was a really big turning point for us to, to see that. And now we're seeing it, you know, all the time. It's, you know, on all these different levels here in L.A., I've, you know, a friend of ours that got elected to a community council. It's the first step to higher office. And um, it's really exciting to see those kinds of things. You know, one other thing that I think is exciting, because Andrea was here for uh, local progress, which is not, you know, and she said they didn't have a queer caucus, she said. But looking around, she said they almost should have, because she and I are walking along, talking, and in walks Maria Haddon, who's a, a lesbian who won our alderman position in Chicago, and she's there. And why not? And she said, you know, we don't have a queer caucus. She said, but we almost need to. But with local progress, uh, she was saying how at these are all local small governments, you know, at the local level, and how many of them were passing things that were LGBT inclusive. And she said that even with her city council, they had passed something that would protect trans lives long after she's no longer on city council. And so, Mm -hmm. but we don't, I mean, and that really, like you said, it's like we see the big, you know, newspaper splash like 2007, first transgender woman, you know, but the work goes on at a smaller level, which is maybe perhaps more meaningful. Yeah. It absolutely is. I'm, I'm a big ground up person. You can't build a house from the top down. You've got to build it from the found, ground up with a good foundation. And that's what that work is. That's why I've always been gravitating or always moving towards those local kind of small scale projects and interactions because when you do enough of that, you build something beautiful and you create momentum. And, um, you know, I think there's some aspects of the top down approach that helps facilitate all this, but that is the, that is the work. It really is. It's, um, 
you know, in, in Michigan, you know, home state, you know, we're uh-huh. seeing a lot of these local ordinances being passed, and, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty high up there. We might be even leading the country at this point with local work passed. But it's all building for that state law. And when we get enough state laws, we'll see the Equality Act. It's, that's, that's, you know, absolute. When we start to move some of these purple states that haven't passed laws, we'll get there. But the way you get there is you pass those local laws, and you build that in-house experience within the movement, um, you see that it works because obviously opponents of equality are always saying it's going to ruin the world if we treat people fairly. Uh, and we just have to continue just working and, and demonstrating that they couldn't be more wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, because, you know, and I think that having those those hearings on the Equality Act, having people there like Carter who talked, broke it down, like you said, he talked about his family and being in yeah. work and being able to do it. So, you know, and I think that more people who didn't realize that we weren't protected, you know, uh, mm-hmm. we weren't protected. And I often tell what was ironic about that was the day that he was testifying about being fired when someone outed him as a trans man was the same day that not only Lori Lightfoot, but a number of LGBTQ candidates we're getting elected, Lori Lightfoot, to be, you know, a lesbian black mayor of Chicago. I mean, who would have thought mm-hmm. it? But, you know, here we're still talking it. But then on the flip side, you know, and we see these things, the same weekend that, you know, we're looking at it, we are up to, I believe it's 15 trans women who have been murdered that we know of. Yeah. That we know of. And we're talking about the Dayton you know, that Dayton massacre, and it's coming out that although they initially tried to say, oh, it was the shooter's sister, and perhaps she was dating a black man, and it turned out that the sister was a trans man. So not only is she being misgendered in the press, the family is still allowing it to be misgendered, but this is a trans murder. The trauma of that, I mean, so there's a moment that you celebrate, but then you see that. How does that affect, you know, not only your work, but you? Yeah, and uh, again, another great topic, like a sad topic, but important we talk about. Uh, With each each of these incidences, murder, murder, those are the big ones, the most visible ones we do see. But uh, in my line of work, a lesser harm, but a harm no less is um, I, you know, with working with uh, transgender jobs, because we hear about all kinds of cases of discrimination, domestic violence. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff there. Maybe some, an incident doesn't escalate into murder, but it involves uh, uh, violence, which is uh, probably one of the you know, major harm. And every time I hear it and my team hears it, our team hears it, uh, it's, it's tough. It's, it's a constant reminder of the challenges we face as a community. Uh, we tend to put a few moments of silence and thought into um, the, that individual and the life that they've led, and we think about all the other folks that um, are in similar circumstances. You know, they could literally be harmed at any moment in time. Walking down the street as trans, as we mm-hmm. say, is just a, a significant vulnerability. And we deal with it at Trans Can Work or in the work that we do by helping find some of these girls, women, uh, and, and trans men. It's, you know, we, we don't turn anyone away. Find mm-hmm. economic empowerment. Because one way I think we can help in that space is um, 
helping people get into a, a job or a position or a career that they can afford a safe place to live, uh, they can afford food security, uh, they don't necessarily have to put themselves at risk to, to pay the bills, and um, it's, it's really our approach. I know there's so many other people doing incredible work to help alleviate some of those harms, but in a very kind of micro-targeted, very strategic kind of way, we know we can do that. And we do do that, and we, we really kind of escalate it every time it happens. In fact, I kid you not, when, when uh, one of these unfortunate incidents happens with a member of our community, we make it a really big point to do everything we can in our power to try to help someone else from that similar circumstance find a job as quickly as we can. We prioritize. Uh -huh. Prioritize uh -huh. as fast as we can. We think about, okay, of all our clients, you know, who – who can we get to quickly that we can help move into one of these positions? And what's really great is we see a lot of employers all about that and wanting to help. And so uh, that's, that's how we try to deal with it um, mm -hmm. and, and to help move the ball forward, so to speak. But uh, it, is, it is tough. I think that that's a very complicated question. I, I sometimes get frustrated when I see things like, let's just stop this. Like, and yet, some folks won't really do what it takes or, or help organizations. I don't, I don't know, or I, I don't see as much energy put into thinking of ways that we can stop this. It's, it's, it's going to be a, a long process, I think, unfortunately, but I think it's going to be continuing to do all the things that we're doing as a movement that's going to help make lives better for everybody. Um, it really is. And so I think we fully normalize, uh, uh, the transgender experience and, and people just go, okay, you know, uh, great, good neighbor. Uh, we'll mm -hmm. really see some of those numbers fall, but it's, it's tough. It's toxic masculinity. There's no real solution, easy solution for that. Uh, it's the vulnerabilities. It's, it's just so complicated that uh, I wish there was an easier answer other than that small kind of local work to help individuals out. It's the best solution I know. You know, because I think that people don't people don't fully in, understand. You know, there's there's a stigmatization that also goes yeah. on, particularly when you see some of the trans women of color. I mean, and and people want to immediately assume that they're doing something wrong. But yeah. like you said, there's part of just living while trans that can put you at risk and and that things do I talked to uh Brie Rivera and she was talking to she told me I mean and it was heartbreaking she had lost her driver's license so she had her passport she had everything and when she went into the secretary of state to get a new driver's license because she needed her driver's license so she could get to work and she had everything she knew she had everything that she needed and the clerk looked at it looked at some of her stuff and was like um nah you know i can't i can't help you here and she said that there was a part of her that just wanted to turn around and go home because yeah. you know but and how much it took to make for herself to say, I'm going to stay here. I need to see your supervisor to know what her rights were to the, yeah. go ahead and do that. And many people, first of all, many people in the, uh, who are trans don't know and or would feel so discouraged and give up. She was yeah. trying to get to her job 
you know, mm-hmm. she was trying to get to her job. How important is or how much of what you do is that education, not only for employers but for people like who are like this, this uh, Secretary of State person who didn't know what she could and could not do. And she said she didn't feel the woman was being malicious. She was just like, no, nah, I, can't, I can't give you a driver's license in that name. When yeah. she had everything. How important is yeah. the education part? Oh, Michelle, it's so important. I mean, that's, that's half the work we do. We're always working with employers to increase that competency and, inc- and change policies so that it reduces that barrier because the reality is identity documents are a big barrier to a lot of folks. Sometimes it could just, um, it can be in bias, right? Like they'll, they'll look at a candidate um, for a position and they'll see this woman or this man in front of them and then they get into the work history or they look at the documents and they go, whoa, what's going on here? And there could be a bias that, you know, with lack of understanding and stigmatization of trans people, a very snap second, you know, unconscious or conscious bias can present itself and then they get turned down for the job immediately or reduced from the candidate pool. And that's what we see really contributing to extraordinary underemployment and unemployment in the trans community is that bias manifesting itself in that period. There's also an element of self and, um, that I believe identity documents are a big part of. You know, when you have an ID that reflects who you are as a person, proper gender marker, um, it's, it's about confidence. It's a big-time aspect of confidence. For years, I did not have proper identity documents. So every time I'd fly somewhere, it was always a little awkward uh, at, the, at TSA or, or doing, um, uh, getting on a plane. <laughs> There's been plenty of situations where I've gone into pretty secure buildings and have to present an ID and then something doesn't match up and there's there's uh, a moment there that uh, can be pretty awkward. I've actually been withheld from going forward. I've been uh, inv- invaded, to so to speak, at, at TSA because things didn't match. And that's been my personal experience, and I'm pretty confident that's been the experience of just about every trans person at some point in their life. And you know, kind of what we can do about it here is that we're putting together actually another gender marker clinics from our understanding here in town. Um, all of them tend to be pretty popular, backed up. There's a bit of a wait list. And it's still, even in a state like California that has these really incredible laws, and I, I dare say probably the highest trans competency in the country, um, it still is a major barrier. And when you look at it being a barrier out here, everywhere else, particularly probably in the South and some of these other more conservative states, it's got to be an even higher barrier does not surprise me to hear that in Michigan, um, especially after the people that have been running the Secretary of State's office the last, you know, 10, uh-huh. 12 years. You know, they've fought on everything, I feel like, up until we got uh, uh, Jocelyn. Jocelyn's the new, the new Secretary of State, right? Jocelyn Benson? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I hear they're making some changes there. But, um, you know, if we really want to help people, a big thing that we can all do is uh, help these really important aspects of our lives. Gender identity documents and, and, and uh, ID, ID documents in general is just such a big barrier for so many people. Let's work together to reduce those barriers. It's a very good goal for any LGBT advocacy organization to be focusing on those kinds of places. Very strategic, very helpful. So, you know, before we, we pivot to uh, trans can work, what, from your professional experience, from your personal experience, what would you say to those who ident- want to identify as allies? What is the most important thing that you feel that they could do? 
Um, I always like people to do a little bit of research, Google around. I, that's my experience is if I want to learn uh -huh. something before I start asking questions and, and really kind of leaning into other people's spaces and, you know, leveraging their experience. I think there's a little cost there every time we take people's time and ask them questions. How many questions can we answer by a quick Google search, right? That, uh -huh. you can answer all, I think all of them. I mean, like Google is that incredible. Um, so I'd say start there. You know, if you've got questions, you can Google these things. You can look at those, there's countless articles on the Internet that talk about all the different ways we can be a great ally. At the end of the day, in a very micro-targeted way, um, it's how I think individuals can help uh, a trans person in their lives directly. Um, and so when I'm talking to HR people, one of the biggest things we ask is, you know, will you give us a chance? You know, will you take a moment to learn about our community so that when those un uh, that unbiased or that unconscious bias presents itself in those hiring processes, you know, you don't have a negative feeling or you're not, you don't feel prepared to work with a trans person. You know, you can alleviate, reduce all of those things with a little education and getting to know our people. And so that's a, that's a big one. If you can hire a trans person, my God, hire a trans person. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if, if you see a trans person in your life, you know, ask how they're doing. I think that's a really big one. I, I, I love to see more people being kind and asking each other, how are you doing? And actually listen to that answer. Um, mm -hmm. That's a big one. Or, or let someone know they are loved, they are cared for. I'm glad you're here. I love that line. I say it all the time. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you're here. You know, it's, I must have said it 25,000 times at Pride this year. Glad you're here. Thanks, mm. for, thanks for checking out on us. But I think those are the big ways, you know, self-initiated mm -hmm. job search. How can you directly help someone and how can you check in with them and just let them know that their life has value, that you appreciate mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I had someone who, who even said to me once, just to ask if you see someone, because especially after when Bree was telling about her experience, she said to have someone one to just sort of look at her and say, are you okay? Yeah. And you know, and she said, you know, someone said that to her, and she said, and it immediately helped her feel that she'd been humanized from being mm -hmm. something to where they were talking about her, that someone saw her as someone who was really facing trauma, who was upset, and just to say, are you okay? You know, and, yeah. and that is so important. Well, we're going to take our second break, and then we're going to get into the meetup and talk about trans-can work, you know. Yay. So, Excited. Yay. All right. So we will be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. We're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and I'm talking with Allison Van Quicken. Allison, I mean, you're here, you're there, you're everywhere. How did 
how did you find out about trans can work? And can you tell us, give us that elevator to talk about what trans can work is and what you do? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, to kind of do the elevator pitch first, and then we can talk about how <laughs> uh, uh, Trans can work really does two things. We work with employers to increase competency and opportunity for the, the transgender community. It, it looks like a lot of things. It's training, it's consulting. Um, it's whatever we need to provide to help employers become better and more proactive about empowering trans people through employment. The second aspect is that we now run, I'm pretty confident, the, the largest trans jobs program in the country. We serve thousands of trans job seekers, primarily in California, but we have been doing more nationally, and we're wow. the, the vision is to how can we do more nationally because it's a needed service. Um, uh-huh. It's definitely, you know, we, every time we get someone a job, it's, it's just so fulfilling to hear um, what that means to them. And uh, with just the sheer number of interest and inquiries in the work we're doing, uh, we, there's just so much to do. And then you look at jobs numbers and it's, 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 it's pretty, it's a daunting challenge. Uh, so we work with job seekers to do a couple of things. One, we help connect them to uh, trans-inclusive employment. We have quite a few quite a few jobs, about 15,000 here in California and a, a growing list nationally that we've been working on um, to move people into those jobs. Now, looking at our clients, um, I hate simplifying things because we all kind of live in a gray space and there's no simple answer to stuff, but if I could simplify a lot of our clients into kind of three buckets, what we see are people that tend to come to us very privileged. Uh, they have great work histories and education. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the challenge for them is that they're working in a company that isn't as inclusive of their identity or they came out in transition within the company. So they have this history of everyone knowing them as, uh, you know, the, the previous gender they, they were seen as. Uh, and they're looking to change. So with those clients, it's, you know, it's easier. It's connecting them to, to employment, they'll, opportunities, and, and they'll do the work and, and they'll get into those jobs. The, the second kind of bucket of folks are people who have uh, addressed some of the crises and trauma in their lives, yet they don't have a lot of work history. Um, and those are going to be more traditional barriers we see with anyone that's really unemployed that doesn't have much of a work history is that where do you start? You know, where, like, what, what can you do there? It's, you know, I'm not making enough money. A lot of them fall into that um, underemployed category, or some people are coming out of street economy work and just don't have that kind of experience or mm-hmm. they uh, transition, left a job, um, their employer isn't great, won't provide references. And so with a lot of those job seekers that come to us, what we've developed this last year is a pretty significant network of workforce development programs. Actually, one of the, the things – I love this about advocacy. I spent so much in these spaces learning about laws and how they come into mm-hmm. fruition and how they pass, but I got a real education in California. And one of the things that caught my attention – was uh, Barack Obama, I believe, in 2014 passed um, the Work Opportunity Investment Act. And what it did is it put a lot of federal funding into every state. Every state has this, uh, but California is one of the states that passed their own law and supplemented it with their own budget. But it's, it's piles or pools of money to help um, – high barrier employment folks find jobs and they do that through technical training, vocational training, uh, all kinds of training. And then in addition to a number of other services to help people get their, uh, really get their foot in the door. So there's resume, interviewing, self-promotion. There's a lot of stuff there. Um, And so we have been working to build out a pretty significant network in those spaces and are on a path now to become one of those centers that we pretty much are at this point, uh, pretty, pretty close to it. And, uh, what we can help with these job seekers is move them into training. 
uh, we're pretty excited. We're, we're, we've got this opportunity now to really put some real money behind some of this training. So it all costs money uh, to uh-huh. go to technical school or training, but to put some real money behind that training. Right now we've tested it. It's, it's worked out so well, Michelle. Uh, but if we could put tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars in the training, then we can really take a pretty significant number of our clients and, and get them this kind of training, whether it's nursing, uh, residential management, hospitality, uh, big data, data, big tech, um, construction. There's just so much that's there that then when these folks get out of, uh, out of those training classes, a job is virtually assured to them. Organizations like ours, all of our workforce development partners, they all have lots of jobs waiting for people with this kind of experience. And so what we've seen is every one of our clients that has completed this training during a little test period all got jobs. And they would not have gotten those jobs or much less made that much money if they had not gone through this training. So it was very impactful. Um, and that is, <clears throat> that's really the work we love. It's, you know, it's, one, mm-hmm. it's great to help people find employment that have you know, the privilege to do that so easily. But it's really a, the, the folks that come to us that we can help. Our being here is going to make the difference that we love. We really, we really, really love that. And then the last group of folks that come to us come to us in crisis. And we know this story well. These are people that are living home, or homeless, um, struggling to find their next meal, um, don't really have any work experience, don't have an education, may have some uh, physical problems, may have some mental health challenges. Um, there's a lot of barriers there. And what we, uh, you know, really they come to us in crisis. And what we're mm-hmm. not well prepared for, we're very well prepared to take these calls and let them know they're seen. And our crew is so good with this, just being so authentic and genuine on the phone that uh, one of the common responses is, wow, I really like working with them because they're, they make you feel good when you talk to them. And what we have done is there's quite a few resources here in town to, to help a lot of these folks. And what we've also done is help identify a lot of new sources, an example being healthcare. There's a lot of trans health programs here in uh, Southern California, but we've been working with Planned Parenthood uh, to increase their trans competency. You know, the, there's a top-down mandate really on helping increase trans competency and offering trans medical services to, to the community. But we've worked very specifically with some of the affiliates out here to really increase those programs and then to move people into those programs. And um, one email I got a couple weeks ago that really made me feel good is that with one of those affiliates we worked with, they're now serving 100 trans people uh, wow. with uh, direct services. And that happened in a few months. We did those trainings back in February, and, you know, I'm hearing about this in July. And um, I, I just it was like, yay, that's 100 people that maybe would have been on a multi-month wait list for some of the more popular visible trans health programs here. Um, so we try to work with those kinds of resources to move our people into them. And what's actually really exciting is um, we're on par to get one of our first uh, city contracts right now. And the city is just so smart. They, they worked with three trans organizations to kind of break out that whole, that whole kind of process with serving the whole self. Uh, so one organization got um, some resources or will be getting some resources to help address housing, food, uh, kind of, and health care, some of those more fundamental needs. And that's what that organization specializes in. Uh, another organization is also helping out with housing, but they serve POs, primarily serve people of color. So they're really addressing those vulnerable communities. And they're very good at what they do. And then to kind of round out that whole wheel, we are going to most likely get some funding to help with the employment piece. Because once you address those kind of 
those, those really important fundamental needs, then you really have to address the, the final piece, which is sustainability, which is going to be employment, uh, employment's purpose, it's housing, it's income, it's sustainability. And so we work with all three of those populations. Um, and once uh, our, our partners kind of help people get back on their feet and address those crises, then they come back to us. And then we can explore options. Um, so that's, that's really what Trans to Work does. We, we really, it's all about economic empowerment for our community. Uh, and it's a great program. Um, I, I, you know, I know there's other groups out there doing trans economic empowerment, but we are trans run, trans led. Uh, and I think at this point, the biggest. I mean, we've got mm-hmm. quite, quite a few people in the program right now. And uh, I'm always thinking ways, you know, how do we get it bigger? How do we get it bigger? It hasn't been long, but how do we get it bigger? So that's, uh, that's, that's trans to work. Mm-hmm. And then how I got involved with this project is uh, when I uh, first came out to California and was working as program director for Equality California, I met uh, this great lady, Michaela Mendelson. Uh, Michaela is a trans woman. She owns a, a number of restaurants here in uh, Los Angeles. And uh, she started, after she transitioned, she started to hire trans women in all of her restaurants. And she worked really hard to create this really inclusive environment for everyone so that they had, a, a, you know, really an equal footing, a, an equal playing field to, to, to work with. And what she saw, and this should be no surprise, is that when you treat people with respect and, and you give them that opportunity to, to play on a level playing field, they all did so well. Um, 25% moved into management. In fact, I think of all the El Pollo Loco stores she owns, the top performing one is run by a trans woman, but I think out of all the chains, and I think there's like 600, one of their top mm-hmm. performing stores is run by a trans woman that came up through that program. And that, that process, Michaela putting really her money where her mouth is and, and doing it internally um, with no real outside participation was the uh, impetus for trans to work. And she at one point decided to take this work that she had been doing in her own stores and take it outside of the stores and how can we help other companies. And it was around that time that I met her. And um, I originally came out to California because I had been working so long and hard on trying to just pass laws. Uh, that I wanted to do something more on the back end, the back nine, as I like to say. That's more about implementation. How to, you know, it's great we pass all these laws, and I, uh, you know, I think that passing laws helps some people. In mm-hmm. some way, it helps all people, but it's not really addressing some of these really fundamental needs, like jobs, economic empowerment. Like, if we had lower unemployment rates, we'd have different kinds of challenges. We'd, you know, we'd have fewer challenges, I think, at the end of the day. And what I really liked about what she was doing is that she was addressing this, this core issue impacting our community. And I liked it because it was in California where we really have the strongest laws in the country on all these things, yet we still have about 50% of our population out here is underemployed. Uh, and depending on your lived experience, you're going to be experiencing unemployment anywhere between 15 to basically 30%. That's huge. And in California where we got under 4% unemployment right now, that's significant what we're still seeing, even in, this in, even in this environment. And so what that picture told me is that we have, you know, this program that can do something about it. We have a moral obligation to try to figure this out. So I got involved with Michaela at that point in time. I came on as an advisor, um, kind of helping them uh, learn more about funding and writing grants because that's one of my, one of my skill sets. And uh, before I ended up going back out east, um, 
they, we, we helped them get uh, a big quarter million dollar grant that really just took them from kind of this uh, small project into, you know, here's an opportunity to demonstrate what we're doing. Uh, so she started working on that, and that was really kind of transfer work in 2017 and then uh, 2018. And um, as I was wrapping up the stuff I was doing in Pennsylvania with HRC, I had stayed in touch with Michaela. I was still kind of advising on the project on and off uh, while I was out east. And uh, I saw an opportunity to, to come in and, and, and just really uh, take trans to work to another level. It was pretty obvious that uh, at the time it wasn't actually being run by a trans person and much less they didn't have a lot of experience in this. So they were doing as good as they could, but there was so much room for improvement. Um, and so uh, I was asked to come in and, and, and help with this. And I started kind of going back and forth between D.C. and L.A., uh, and we, uh, we had some staffing changes. I brought on a, just about all, all trans team. Uh, we restructured the program, and really what we saw this last nine months is, you know, us move up into thousands of clients, uh, getting, you know, scores really well past 100 hires in the last couple months. Uh, we watched that workforce development program come together, uh, and we're, we're now at a place where I'm, I'm hoping to see our budget perhaps top a million uh, mm. in the next couple of months. And mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's really been my involvement in this. And I just I adore my team. We have a great team. Uh, I, it's great having Michaela's insight on stuff because she's, uh, she's done this, like I said, in her restaurants. And she's also got a lot of visibility. I'm sure a lot of trans people and allies maybe have seen a segment or two about her and the work she's done over the years. But um, she's, she's got an incredible voice and a very large platform to really push this forward. And it's opened a lot of doors for us and our job seekers to get into employment. And so it's kind of an all hands on deck. Uh, we've got, uh, we kind of consider ourselves a bit of a startup still, but it's, um, it's just incredibly exciting work. And uh, I would love to see, you know, models like trans to work everywhere. Cause it would make a difference mm-hmm. or, you know, us get bigger so that we can have more impact outside of California. Um, and more impact within California. You know, one of the things that I think of, you know, as I listen to you talk, and what I what I, I think that you're doing the real work is, because I can remember, you know, putting on my HRC hat, how, you know, we often would wonder, you know, you have these companies that are getting, you know, 100 on the corporate equality index, they're just doing wonderful, but then, you know, you see in the communities where maybe they have a plant or whatever, you know, we couldn't get human rights ordinances passed or you saw, you know, people getting elected who weren't for LGBTQ rights. And I had talked to someone at HRC, right, and they, once and they were, and I said, you know, I don't understand. And then they were saying like, well, you know, it's one thing to get it at the, on the board level, but then to get it on the plant floor. And one of the things that I hear as you talk about it and what, what comes to my mind is, you know, when you get somebody a job, if I'm working next to you, if, I'm, if you're able to then move your family into my neighborhood and we become neighbors, it's, yep. it's a lot harder for me to say, oh, those people, or, it's okay, or, or, or close my eyes to, oh, another trans person got murdered. I mean, because you're my neighbor, you're my coworker, I get to know you. And it sounds to me like trans can work. Is that key to taking it from the boardroom to the plant floor to the community? 
Michelle, you are you're so spot on. That's <laughs> I think about mm-hmm. what we're doing, and I think that it's it's kind of smart, <laughs> but it's mm-hmm. it's so true. At the end of the day, we're going to reduce so many of the problems we face as a community through two actions. One is the visibility. So I'm so glad the HRCs of the world, Glads of the world, Laverne Cox, all the work that they are doing to be visible is so important because that changes things. It creates that playing field. Uh, for the higher level, deeper level, more important level contact, which is actually getting to know someone and having that personal interaction. So with a lot of that visibility, we see, yes, it's so good. It's creating that baseline education. It's um, reducing stigmatization. It's just, it's so important. But that will only get you so far with so many people. And what's really required beyond that is contact. And, you know, really the model. Uh, the more recent model I think we can use is really just take a look at our gay and lesbian brothers and sisters and bisexual brothers and sisters um, and greater, greater sexual orientation spectrum. I don't want to leave anyone out. Um, but mm-hmm. you saw them, you know, literally, you know, 20, 30 years ago, really just not being a part of society, deep stigmatization around sexual orientation, uh, not a lot of visibility. And then when you started seeing visibility and it became a little bit more common, then you started to see a lot of people coming out at work. And here we are 20, 30 years later, and everybody knows an LGBT person. It's either a friend, a family member, a colleague. Um, And really what you see is overwhelming acceptance of that community. And we need to do the same thing. And because there's so few of us, I mean, we're we're not as prevalent, although it's changing, and we can talk about that in a second. But currently Mm -hmm. there's only 1.4 million on the conservative side um, estimate of trans adults in America. And I think the greatest way that we can really increase competency outside of those visibility tactics is contact. And what's the best way to do that? It's getting people in the workplace where you're around 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 people maybe. Uh, and you're interacting with them constantly and you're getting to know them as that good neighbor, as an enjoyable person to work with, uh, someone on a team that's pulling their weight and doing their job and uh, bringing a new perspective to things. And that right there, I think at the end of the day, is how we change things permanently, irreversibly, that's how we move it forward. And so huh. this particular task we're involved in, we're trying to create this pipeline and to move more people into that visibility. Every time we get a hire, I take a look at how big those companies are and how many people they're working around. And I'm like, well, there's 40, there's 50, there's 60 people now. They're going to be in close contact with a member of our community. And they're all going to get better for it. <laughs> they're all going to get better for it. And they will treat other trans people that they come in contact with better because of it. And that is why I'm now doing what I'm doing, because I think of all the advocacy I've experienced over the last 20 years, there's lots of amazing people now in this space. I don't need to be another one of them. But in this particular workspace, there's so few of us. And so this Mm -hmm. is just a good use of time. It's a tactic that no one else is really doing as intentionally as us. And... um, I suppose maybe in an indirect kind of way, there's definitely groups like HRC that's doing it very large and, and using the CEI to help kind of push that forward. But on that very intentional level, um, I think we're really kind of out front on that and, and figuring mm-hmm. out how do we do this. You know, there's no real model for how, we're, how you're supposed to do this. You know, we're, we're, we're building the plane as we're flying it right now. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's, it's working. It's working very well. And mm-hmm. Um, we're establishing best practices and uh, a more replicable model to to do elsewhere and to do on a grander scale. And you know, and it, and it's to me the fact that you have all of your staff are transgender 
you get it. I mean, you know, and there's no one one trans story like, oh, well, if you go, this is going to happen. It, there's a lot of different stories. And, by, and having a staff that gets it, when yeah. you have someone who's coming in, from one of these, and the fact that you're able to, there's no one story. There's three different buckets of people who come in and that you're able to then put them to the right place to get yep. them. You know, it's not like, hey, y'all come in and we'll do a resume for you. It's all good. And then go to a job fair. That's, you yep. know, it's not that, it's not that cookie cutter. I mean, that, that's yep. just like, uh, it's just like, wow. Yeah. I think, I think it's great. I would love to see this going all over because I mean it's a it's a part of visibility. It's a part of seeing. It's a part of of changing that climate and and you know that's how we push back against those who will hate. Because I said yeah. when you it, if a family member is better able to come out, who doesn't feel that they have to stay hidden and not be themselves, not live authentically, not come out as transgender because maybe they couldn't get a job, their family would do it, to come out and be there to say that. And it doesn't have to be, it's easy to look at celebrities and not see yourself. This way you're helping people see themselves and, and yeah. find a way, their own way. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is just like, I think it's great work. I mean, I'm just... My, 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 I think it's great work, and I would love to see it go everywhere because that's what people want. I also liked how you did, and I spoke recently uh, on a Planned Parenthood rally, that people need to understand there is that intersectionality. Why should we support organizations like Planned Parenthood or other groups that serve low-income people? Because often that's where members of our community go for their health care. Yeah, yeah, that's so important. It is. It makes such a huge difference. I've been through so many healthcare systems in my time that some were better than others, and I really appreciate those. And uh, you know, it's it's you know something I care a great deal about is to ensure everyone kind of has that experience and can get served in a timely fashion. Geez, I remember when I, I was ready to ready to transition. You know, there's nothing that could stop me, and I couldn't get started on hormones fast enough. And tremendous amount of anxiety leading up to that. And uh, the more options that people have, the more competent options that people have, you know, the less harm there will be in the world. And so the, the, the Planned Parenthood piece, we loved it. I mean, they were ready to go. They wanted to do it. And they wanted the, the help to get there. And we were there for that. And, again, when they told me that they had 100 clients already, I was blown away. Uh, from my understanding, mm-hmm. the entire VA in Southern California has about 100 clients. And uh, to hear that this little Planned Parenthood affiliate in, in L.A., it's not the main one, but one of the, the, um, uh, the other one, uh, to have them have 100 clients so fast just really blew my mind. That's 100 people now that are getting confident health care, uh, getting closer to living that authentic life or are living it. And um, that, that just makes such a big difference. Again, you have to address those fundamental needs before you can really treat the whole self, help them get a job, help them get that job that's going to feel good, make them feel empowered, uh, and, and really kind of change the, the day-to-day experience. Mm-hmm. So if you were to look back at, say, that 25-year-old Allison who was trying to define, looking for that space, that safe space, and 
look at you now. You're traveling mm-hmm. the country for your work. You've got a beautiful family. You're learning okay. every day from this toddler. What would you say to her or to someone who is that person today? Um, wait, Michelle, can you say that one more time? <laughs> I think I may okay. have heard something different. Sorry. Oh, okay. So if you were to be able to go back and talk to yourself when you were 25 and where you were mm-hmm. before you had come out and you had transitioned, or if you were to meet a trans woman, trans man who was going through those thoughts right now, what would you tell them now that you, you've had this career and more importantly, you have your family, you're traveling, you know, you're learning from this little person every day. What would you say to them? Yeah, so, okay, great question. I, I did hear it right. So if I was talking to 25-year-old me, I'd probably just say, <laughs> buckle up, you know, get ready. <laughs> wait, till, wait, wait till you see what's about to come. Um, mm-hmm. However, my, my 25-year-old self, I really feel like I needed that five years between 25 and 30 when I came out uh, to fully mature, I guess you could say. Everyone's different, but that's my experience. And what, I, what happened to me in those five years is I learned how to love myself a little bit more. Um, I think it took a fair amount of love to finally come out versus uh, take my own life or, um, uh, uh, or uh, I don't know, just fall into the trap of being depressed and, and unmotivated. Um, I needed those five years to build confidence in who I was. I needed it to build the job experience I acquired during those years because it was just that experience is so tremendously important and critical to, to the path I've been on. Um, I had a spouse at the time, and it was really my, my first real, I guess you could say, deep relationship uh, that I learned how to love others uh, in that time. So I, I needed everything I had during those five years. And I would just say, look, you know, I, in the back of my mind at all times, I knew I was trans and that someday this was going to have to be addressed. And so I would just say, you know, hold on, <laughs> you, know, it, it, mm-hmm. you know, it'll, it'll change. With, that, that's my experience. and I, I don't want to hold that up to anybody else. But if I, and I do, I, I, I talk to people all the time. I sometimes do our intake calls, um, I'm always talking to folks when I'm, I'm in community and um, I don't try to self promote my lifestyle to everyone because I, I also recognize I'm fairly privileged to have a spouse. Too many of us don't really get to experience that. I'm also pretty privileged to have a child. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people can't have that either. Um, so in more of my role now when I, when I come across people is again, I, I check in and I just let them know they're gl- I'm glad they're here. Uh, I like to do everything I can to make them feel welcome. Uh, I think there's just so much about building trust in, in each other, especially in this community, that my real attention would be on building trust. And I think it would eventually move into, you know, how can we help? It's, it's, I guess it's literally what we do with every client every day. Is, um, and we see people in those positions as all of our team, when we're working with clients, is to let them know it's okay. We're glad you're here. Um, and are you ready to work? You know, are you ready to put the effort in to get to a new place you want to go? Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, doing everything we can to support them uh, mentally, to some extent spiritually, um, and of course physically and economically. And uh, it's, it's just a different playing field. You know, when I was 25, I did not have these possibility models. I did not see trans families and trans professionals. Mm-hmm. But people can see that today. 
And I think that would be part of that conversation would be, you know, anything is possible, <laughs> you know, anything mm-hmm. is possible. And if there are glass ceilings where you, you know, you think there's glass ceilings in certain places, you know, why don't you be the one to break that glass ceiling? You know, how can we help mm. you break that glass ceiling? You know, it's, it's, if there's a ceiling to be broken, let's do it. You know, it's, it's a good challenge in life. And it's, um, you know, at the end of the day, it'd be something great to look back on is, you know, I, I set that, I broke that ceiling for someone else. I cleared a path for someone else to follow. Um, and uh, I would probably say something along those lines. I, I guess it would depend on the situation and where they were at. But at the end of the day, it'd just, to sum it all up, it'd be a word of hope, a message mm. of hope. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and before we go, our last question. Now that, you know, you're a parent, what world do you dream, not only for Ellie, but for our children? Mm-hmm. What um, world do you dream of? A better one, for sure. To, to the short mm-hmm. answer is a better one. But I, I look at what all of our conscious decisions have been with her, uh, and I would really extrapolate that out to everyone. I wanted Eleanor, I want Eleanor to grow up in a world where she is not in this kind of segmented, segregated uh, world. I grew up in suburban West Michigan. It was incredibly white there, very, very white. Mm. Um, and I learned about different people and cultures much later in life than she ever will. I mean, she literally is going to daycare and, you know, she is literally, you know, one of many different kinds of people there. And she's going to grow up in a world where diversity is so normal. It's so normal. Um, and it's, it's an important value in our family. Um, and that's, I think that's really where I would like to see the world be a better place. I think that at the end of the day, you look at everything that's going on in this country uh, with the rampant racism, the election of this mm-hmm. terrible president and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just because there's so much resistance to that kind of integration, desegregation, and um, uh, that we experience lack of diversity that we really experience in society. It, it really is. And, and us being in Los Angeles, you know, this is an incredibly diverse town, uh, one of the most diverse I've ever lived in, and if not the most. And I wanted that for her. I wanted her to know that this is the world we're going to live in, and it's absolutely better because of it. Beyond that, it's kindness. I mean, I watch Sesame Street with her every day before I take her <laughs> off to school, and mm-hmm. uh, they've got a, a great message on there about being smarter, stronger, and kinder. And I, I think the kindness piece really stands out to me because we're at such a weird time where kindness is like a bad word for so many people. Like, why be kind to them, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I just... I struggle with that. I feel like we have taken a big step back or really, I think this was always there and this president just brought it to the surface and Hmm. we all kind of have this role right now in society to correct that, you know, for once. And perhaps this could be the moment where we really kind of put that sentiment on its heels where no, it's not okay to be a jerk. You know, no, it's not okay to be, Mm -hmm. no, it's not okay to be feminist. And if you are, you are going to be disadvantaged in society. Um, you know, you're not going to have jobs because no one wants a racist in the workplace. You know, you're not going to have any sort of real opportunity because you have these horrible values that are steeped in absolute nonsense. Um, and that's the kind of world I want her to be in. I want her to, to look up and, to, you know, she will have privileges because I think, you know, she's white. Uh, but mm-hmm. to use what privileges she has to help other people, uh, to be a contributing member of society and 
I, you know, if I'm successful, she won't be selfish. <laughs> she, will, mm-hmm. uh, she will care about those around her and be that good neighbor I like to talk about. Oh. Well, Allison, I want to thank you for your time today and for the work that you're doing, not only for today, but to help us get to that that world for our children because everything you've talked about will help us get there. I thank you. Look for you know, forward to watching your adventures with Eleanor and <laughs> uh, and enjoy Sesame Street. You know, I might watch Sesame Street tomorrow morning just because, you know, that might be the cure some morning just to like get up there and face it. Let's sit down and watch Sesame Street. <laughs> I will say this. I used to wake up every morning and look at Facebook and scroll through the news and, you know, see all the stuff that's happening. And it, it gave me a lot of anxiety. And uh-huh. I have switched that habit out for doing constructive activities with Eleanor before I take her to school every morning. Yeah. And I, I love Sesame Street. It's like a morning affirmation to watch one of those <laughs> shows with her. She gets into it. You know, she doesn't really understand some of the lessons they're talking about just yet, but I do. And I love hearing that. It sets a tone for my day that I carry through. And, uh, you know, as I'm dealing with a client, I have a difficult situation, you know, there's just something there. There's this lesson in that show that really just brings me down to earth, centers me, uh, and uh, I love that. I really do. It's, it's made such a significant difference in my life to, to have that, that uh, I wish that practice on everybody, you know, take that time with your family or just watch the show. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a fun show. It's a fun show. Mm-hmm. Yep, yes, it is. And thank you so much. And you have to come through Detroit or Michigan some point in time as you go from east to west and west to east. And and I look forward to seeing you. Absolutely, Michelle. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for for thinking about us and uh, having me on today. I want to thank today's guest, Allison Van Quicken, the executive director of Trans Can Work. Trans Can Work is a leading workplace education and workforce development organization advancing transgendered inclusion in the workplace. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.